Martin Lord. Thank you for his friendship, Father God. Thank you for uh, the preparation he's put into uh, bringing your word this morning. Holy Spirit, may, we, may, may you continue to flow through him. Lord, may your words be echoed in his mouth, Lord Jesus. May we have open hearts to listen, be encouraged and challenged. Bless us now in your precious name. Amen. 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 Praise God. Hallelujah. Well, I was uh, floods of tears a few seconds ago, just singing that wonderful, wonderful song. It's just amazing, isn't it? What an amazing time of worship that was. And the sense of God's presence was just everywhere. And I don't know about you, but I just shed tears. I'm a big old softy, I guess. But, uh, but when I feel the touch of the Father in my heart, it just overwhelms me to know that he's singing over me and he's singing over you. A special song, a song of love, a song of deep acceptance, a song that if you were the only person in the world, he would be there for you because he loves you so much. Do you believe that? That's true, you know. And there was such a sweet sense of him ratifying that declaration over every heart here today. And I love that little line that says, eternity is written on our hearts. You know, we had some pretty sad news about half an hour ago. A good friend of ours who was a big supporter of our ministry, I mean, in prayer as well as everything else, but he passed away suddenly with, with a heart failure. And uh, it's sad because he's a good friend of Susan mine. And obviously, on a human level, we're grieving. But at, at an eternal level, we know where he is. Yeah. You know, eternity is written in our hearts. And it's, it's true for Jeff. We, we know where he is. And even though he was cut short at the age of mid-60s, which is nothing these days, is it? You know, he's with Jesus. Amen. And that's the eternal perspective that's written on our hearts and gives us hope and gives us encouragement and gives us purpose in all that we do. Amen? Praise God. Amen. Uh, just a couple of little announcements from me before I get into what I want to teach. hope I'm not switching the channels too quickly there, but uh, you know what I mean. Caleb has, every two years, a thing called the Caleb Advance. It's like a conference uh, with a difference. It's a celebration conference. And we always have uh, guest speakers in, and this year we've got a guy called Dr. John Andrews. Some of you may know that Dr. John was part of Renewal at one time. Uh, he's an outstanding communicator, and it's going to be a really, really brilliant day. Uh, so we've got him speaking twice on the Saturday, which is the 15th of September, by the way, Saturday 15th of September. We've also got a great band from Wales called The Sound of Wales. They, my daughter Rachel plays with them, and they are a really excellent band to do the worship for us. We've got seminars, uh, we've got a two-course meal thrown in, and uh, free parking, and it's near Ross on Wise, so it's not too far from you guys, and it's going to be a really outstanding time. So if you're, you're interested, it's only going to cost 12 quid, that's, you won't even buy a two-course meal for 12 quid these days, would you? let alone everything else that's going along with it. Uh, it'll be a really, really wonderful day. So if you want to get a, a leaflet, I leave a few at the front, it's, that's what it looks like. Um, and you can do that a bit later, if you so wish. Okay, well, I've called what I want to share today, based on what um, Ben uh, suggested I, I speak on, is following on from your relational relationship matters theme 
I've called it God's desire for missional families. It is God's desire for missional families. And I'm kind of preaching to the choir, really, because you are a church that's very much on this kind of journey. In fact, as we were praising and worshipping, I just had this impression in my spirit of a kind of um, an all-purpose vehicle. Do you know what I mean? Something that's capable of crashing through the bush. I mean, we were missionaries in Tanzania, and we had one of these Land Rovers, and it would crash through the bush and do anything. Roads, who cares about roads, you know, because you can just go. And I just got this sense that God is calling you as a fellowship to kind of go off piste a little bit. Uh, not, not in any dangerous way. I mean, in terms of exploring the fullness of what this is all about about being missional families, being those who, who, who go, cut a new groove, a groove of, of joy, a groove of, of, of kingdom life, a groove of family life, being together. And you're on a journey, and I really sense that God was equipping you to go on that journey. And uh, so be excited about that and be encouraged. God is with you as you're exploring these things. But of course, being a missional family means building relationships so sometimes with people who in the natural you may not wish to, to meet up with. And my dad, bless him, he still preaches at the age of 92. And uh, he used to say these, these things to me when he was not getting on quite so well with some of the brethren he was with. He'd say, what joy there'll be when we all meet the saints way up in glory. But living with them down below, well, that's a different story. <laughs> And, <laughs> and you can sometimes empathize with that sentiment, can't you? Because sometimes it's not quite as, uh, as cushy as Dell would say, being with people who, um, who you don't normally get on with. But this is, this is the grace of God. This is agape love kicking in to love even those we don't find easy to love because there's the love of God which transcends all other loves, isn't it? And overcomes our natural limitations. And that's the kind of love I want to speak about today, really. But I want to take more of a macro view of our subject because, I mean, I've been looking on your website and listened to a few of the recordings that are there. And you've had subjects like forgiveness. I just made a few notes of them here. Healing hurts, resolving conflicts, the power of the tongue, love thy neighbor and thy enemies. Am I my brother's keeper? Keeping promises, truthfulness. You've had all those uh, great sermons, no doubt. And that's been looking at the micro-reality of what it means to be a missional family. But I want to kind of focus out a little bit and be like an eagle looking down. And let's have a look at some of the macro-pictures of why this is important for you to go forward as a family. Dear me, I wish I didn't have to wear these jolly things, but I do, I'm afraid. Okay. <clears throat> Now, we all know that the book of 1 John is the, is the book of love, don't we? You know, we, we read there that God is love. The essence of God, the essence of the kingdom of God is loving relationships. And so, if we, if we bear that in mind, the Bible gives us a blueprint for how we are to be as his church. And I want to just have a look at that there. But well-known scripture, 1 John 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Simple scripture. But think about it. What, I've got that picture in there because that was once a tree, wasn't it? But it's been laid down. Somebody's cut it down, which is on one side of that uh, little stream, and have made a bridge out of it. 
And in a sense, that's what I believe the scripture is teaching us here. Jesus made a bridge between God and us. And the gap, the chasm was our sin. But he became a bridge by laying his life down. And we ought to have this heart to want to be bridges for one another. Now, whatever it takes to lay my life down, I'm prepared to do that. Whatever God challenges me about, I'm prepared to do that. I want to take up my cross daily. We talked about this yesterday. That it's like as if God gives us this metaphorical cross that we're carrying and we can put to death the things that stop us doing that. Laying down our lives for our brothers. Can you imagine what kind of church would emerge if we all took that to heart and said, I want to be the kind of man or woman who lays down my life for my brothers and sisters, for my friends. Instead of choosing my way, I'm going to choose God's way. Instead of preferring self-interest, I'm going to allow that to be crucified to look to the interests of others before myself. And so the whole passion of our heart will be to do whatever it takes to create bridges. You're called the bridges. It's quite topical, isn't it? But the bridges. So you can imagine, and in fact, if you study some of the world conflicts that have taken place, what did the enemy try to do immediately within a city? Destroy the bridges. Once the bridges have gone, there's no communication. There's all sorts of uh, suspicions go on, lack of communication and so on. But when bridges are restored, people can cross over to them and the city comes alive again. So if we become bridge builders by saying, I want to lay my life down for my brothers and sisters, then we'll do whatever God challenges us with. And if we ever come across something in ourselves that wants to be the explosive that destroys the bridge, we think, hang on, I've got to defuse this bomb quickly. Because I don't want that bridge to be destroyed. I want it to remain intact so that my brothers and sisters can feel love from me, can feel forgiveness from me, can feel patience from me, can feel kindness from me, because that's my heart. I want to be a bridge builder. I want to fulfill this macro scripture about those who lay down their lives for their friends. That's what God is calling us to do. The practice of this revelation then determines what kind of church we'll form. You know, I did an interesting study once in church history about looking at how the church has uh, fallen from its original pattern and how it's rising again. And I've got this little diagram here. I got it from a book by Kevin Connor called The Feasts of Israel. And you can see that flat line there, the fall and rise of Jesus' church. And let me build up a picture here for you. This line represents the perfect will of God. And then the beginning on the left is AD 33, which is obviously the time when Jesus was around. I will build my church, he said. So we're talking about the book of the books of the Gospels and the book of Acts. And on the right-hand side is the end-time church, a purposeful, powerful, empowering, loving church. Now, where are we on that line? Most of us would probably say we're towards the right-hand side, yeah? And so this has been the perfect will of God. But has it been perfect? If any of you study church history, you know it hasn't been. And so we see this decline occurring around about 300 years after the death of the Apostles. 
And uh, up until that 300 years, they had a very different kind of church which emerged after that. They met primarily in homes. They were a lot more organic, a lot more relational, a lot more family-oriented. Sometimes they'd meet in temples or synagogues, but mainly it was within the homes of the Christians, within the cities and towns where the churches were. But then a great decline occurred with the Roman church coming into place, and popes replaced Christ and cathedrals replaced the body of Christ, and people started going to church rather than assembling to be the church. Can you see the difference? If I go to church, I go to a place where I have to be on my best behavior, but if I assemble to be the church, I'm myself wherever I am because I'm the church. Where my, my one or two, two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst. So you could say there's an expression of church whatever we have relationships going on. And so church continues 24-7 in the pre decline years of the early church but then there's this, this big big decline and the roman church dominated as i say with all these different expressions which took the church into a very different expression became very institutional very clergy laity divided and it became somewhat of a a very different expression to what the blueprint of the holy spirit birthed on the day of pentecost but something wonderful happened in 1517. You all know that, don't you? It was the Great Reformation. When Martin Luther nailed the thesis that he created on the doors of the Wittenberg Church and declared that the just shall live by faith. He also brought in another really important doctrine, which we enjoy today, called the priesthood of all believers. So instead of the Roman Catholic priests being the only priests, everybody he found from the Scripture was to be a priest, including you and me. And so he declared that um, great truth, but sadly, because of the structure of the institutional format of the church, the practice of the priesthood of all believers was rarely seen. You still had the clergy, laity, divine. But from that moment on, the church began to ascend again back to its end-time pattern. And that's the place of restoration, you could say. And that's church history, and that's the permitted will of God. Denominations, parachurch groups, and so on and so forth. Now, where do we think we are at the moment? Nobody can be certain, can they? But I guess we're around about here, I think. We're coming towards there. Sometimes maybe we're edging onto this flat line again. Although maybe 30 years ago they might have said the same thing. We don't know, do you, what revelations God's got in the future. So we can't be certain of that. But one thing we can be certain is that we are coming closer and closer to God's blueprint. Now, does he work in every structure? Yes, he does. He works in the Roman Catholics as much as he does in, in, in other denominations and even non-denominations because God is God and he's much bigger than us. And so he works in them all and we bless God for them all and we honor and respect them all. But... We have a responsibility to do what we can to please the heart of God. And I believe the heart of God is after missional families. And so I guess as a fellowship, and I'm kind of pleading myself in with you at this point, we're probably somewhere around about here, I would think, and edging further and further towards that goal that God would have for us. So what was created, you could say, is like two expressions of church. The early church, 300 years of the early church, and what is now emerging 
these days is what you might call missional, organic, simple-style church based on family love and oneness and transparency and openness, okay? And then you've got what you might call the institutional or traditional church, which tended to be a kind of uh, a service that you go to. So I, you, you think to yourself, what, what restaurant should we go to today? Fancy a bit of Chinese. Go, we go to the Chinese restaurant. If they serve up Indian, you'd be knocking on the door saying, hang on a minute, I want to complain. I come for you for Chinese, not Indian. But people can get that impression of coming to church. Oh, well, who's speaking today? Oh, he's not so bad. Uh, maybe I'll come along. If they're no good, oh, he wasn't very good, was he? And we come with this consumer mentality rather than a contributor mentality. You see, the early church, people would come willing to contribute because there was no kind of service going on with the clergy up the top, having, you know, the power for the hour kind of expression. Everybody would come with their portion of life. Yes, of course, they had elders. Of course, they had leaders. Of course, they may well have had pastors. And they may well have been the leaders who would prepare well for the service. So that's great, of course. But everybody wouldn't have come just to be served. They would have come to serve because that's the Spirit of Christ. He came as a servant and encouraged us to be the same. So can you see what, what God had formed and which was destroyed but is now coming back? It's this sense of being a missional family or a family on mission. And we are, what is our mission? It's to become like Christ and to share his kingdom with those who need to hear about it. And that's what it's all about. So we have to ask ourselves, which type of church that I just described do we want to be? Do you want to be a church where you just come and be served? Well, yeah, you can still do that. Or do you want to be a kind of a church that you come to give? You know, at least do we come with a sense of, well, I've prayed for the service. I've prayed for the worship team. I've prayed for Ben. I've prayed for whoever's delivering the sermon. I've prayed, and I'm coming to support, and you got me, and I'm there for you. And if you get a problem, I'm on the field with you to sort it out. Is that your heart, or is our heart saying, well, I'm just going to come, and hopefully it's going to be good. And if it's not any good, I probably won't be coming again. It's that consumer thing that we've got to really come against because that's the institutional model as opposed to the family of God model. And God is calling us and wooing us and drawing our hearts towards a greater family expression of oneness which Jesus loved, of course. Which one fits better into God's eternal purpose for his church? Have a look at this quote here by Frank Viola. Anyone ever reads Frank Viola's books? Very good writer. And in his book, um, From Eternity to Here, he writes this, which gives you a kind of an illustration of what the church should be like. The father obtained the bride for his son by the Spirit. He then builds a house in which he, the son, and the bride dwell together in the Spirit. The father, the son, and the bride live in that house as an extended household, and they have offspring by the Spirit. The offspring constitutes a family, a new humanity called the body of Christ. So in that pretty succinct paragraph there, you can see the descriptions of the church that Jesus is building. He's building a church that's a bride for his son. I love that story in the book of Genesis, 20, chapter 24, I think it is, where Abraham is old and he wants to find a bride for his son Isaac. 
And so he sends uh, Eleazar, his chief servant, who's been with him for all of, most of his life, into the far-off country of Mesopotamia, where he came from, where are the Chaldees. And he says, go and find a bride for my son. So the, uh, the servant's on his way, and he takes camels and spices and all the rest of it. And just because he gets there, he prays to God. And he says, Lord, let the woman who is the right person uh, be willing to water my camels and do this and do the other thing. And, of course, his little fleece comes to pass. And Rebecca emerges, and she fills the water troughs for her camels and his camels and all the rest of it. And then, you know the story, eventually she is won over, and she returns with the servant to uh, Isaac, who sees her coming in the distance, and they fall in love, and they get married. And it's a lovely romantic story, isn't it? But it's a story of the Godhead. Who's Abraham representative of, do you think? The Father God, yeah? Who's Isaac a representative of? Jesus. What about Eliezer, the servant? The Holy Spirit. And Rebecca? the bride of Christ. Can you see that? So you're the Rebecca. We are the Rebecca in a sense. So God the Father is after his bride for his son. And he wants to make her perfect and beautiful and fitting for his son. So he's working his beauty into your life and into my life and bringing her to his son. And so, look at it. The Father obtained a bride for his son by the Spirit. So by Eliezer. The, uh, the servant. He then builds a house in which he, the son, and the bride dwell together in the spirit. What is the house? The household of God is the church worldwide, really. It's the, it's the place where God has a, a, a place of worship. It's, it's, it's likened to a temple. So you could say that the house of God is the place of worship. It's not a building. We should never call this place the house of God. We are the house of God. You could assemble in a field or in a park and be the house of God because the house of God is a place where God is revered, honored, and worshipped with all of our heart and our lives because we all know that worship isn't just singing. Worship is living a lifestyle that glorifies God. And so the bride comes with the Father and the Son and they build a house of worship and adoration and kingdom life. And purity where Jesus is Lord of all. And then the, uh, the bride is in the house as an extended household, and they have offspring by the Spirit, and the offspring is called the family. So the bride, and, and you have to kind of use your imagination here, okay, the father, the son, the bride, they have offspring. And the bride, of course, gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because that is the offspring that we are. And so the household of God started relatively small on the day of Pentecost. And now what's the size of the household of God? It's massive, isn't it? Because it's the bride, it's the house, and it's the family together. And as the family grows up, just like in a natural family, the children start to learn their giftedness and start operating as a body. Can you see where all the types and metaphors all fit together? in that lovely story. And so God is looking for churches that bring the purest expression of love and adoration as the bride, who build a house of worship so that everyone is loving one another and living like families and worshiping God with their whole beings. They then become this natural but spiritual family. They help one another discover giftedness as the body. I think I'm losing my mic here. 
Okay, we're okay. That's fine. And that body then expresses the life of Christ together. That is a picture of the church. And I think I've got little portraits of that to illustrate it in the book of Ephesians here in the next one. Here's five relational pictures of a growing church in Ephesians. The bride, intimacy with Jesus. You know the story about that as Paul writes about how a man and a woman are to be. And he says this is the type of the bride of Christ. So intimacy, that's what the bride represents. A lifestyle of worship, the house, as we looked at. We could look at that in, in chapter 2, verse 19 to 20. The family, births, disciples, relationally. You could see chapter 1, verse 5 there. The body, identifying, equipping, functioning. Again, another reference there. And until he comes, the army, engaging in apostolic mission. If you look and do a great study of the book of Ephesians, which if we had time we would do, you'll see all five types of the church there. And when a church is operating like that, it looks very, very different to the institutional models that the Roman church began 300 years after the death of the apostles. It looks a lot more like a missional family. And so you can see biblically, and we haven't got time to go into any depth on this, but you can see biblically God is looking for that type of expression. So which one extends and expresses the relational unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on earth? Here's the relational unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They enjoyed what I'm calling, well, it's not my word, it's been around for a long time, kingdom communitas. Communitas is the very spirit of unity. It's the spirit of being together in community. You know what it's like? We had a, a lovely uh, barbecue last night, and there was a sweet sense of fellowship and oneness, just chilling out together, sharing heart and life and jokes and so on. That's communitas. It's when you are with people you love, and you just get this atmosphere of sweetness and presence and the love of God. And so you can imagine Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity to eternity have enjoyed this kingdom communitas. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perfect oneness, perfect love, perfect unity. And then the Godhead, so, so this communitas is passed down from the Godhead to Jesus. He has been the representative, the progenitor, the first born amongst many brethren, our second Adam, who comes to the earth carrying kingdom communitas in his very DNA. And he gathers together 12 apostles. And so he lives with them. They kind of sleep under the same stars in canvas probably, sharing life, catching fish together and doing all that they did those three years of his ministry. And he passed this spirit of community down to them. The twelve apostles then to us, the church, his body. And so here we are today in this day and age. And we are carrying something of the DNA of the Godhead in our very being. If you have the Holy Spirit, you carry kingdom communitas with you. You just need to have an expression of that, a place where you can express it, and you've got one here in this fellowship. And as God is taking you on a journey to explore what it means about relational matters, relationships matter, then you'll be able to find places you can express this, and probably already are. But there is somewhat of a high cost of this assembled to be his church family discipleship model of being church. Let's have a look at a few of those in my next slide. 
So the cost of being his church family and its consequences. On the left, being his church family. On the right, the outcomes. So the first one, being his church family, we meet for missional community in one another's homes. Now that's costly, isn't it? To open up your home to somebody is costly. But don't forget the early church did a lot of that. That's where church mainly took place. As I say, it was only after the demise of the early church did church buildings come about. Not that there's anything wrong with church buildings. They're neutral. As long as you've got family-heartedness, you can have a great big church building that's massive. That's great. But if we start thinking that's church, that's where we go wrong, you see. And so we need to get that bit right. So meeting for missional community in one another's homes, the outcome, shared lives and homes, builds real relationships and satisfies the heart of God. If you look at the book of Acts 2 there, it talks about them uh, selling their possessions and distributing them as, as any had need and there was not a needy person amongst them. And in other words, they expressed this relational love so powerfully that needs kind of disappeared. And if they popped up, they were dealt with by the atmosphere of love, the communitas, the spirit of love that was pervading everything. Now, I know I'm painting an ideal picture, and in reality, we may never quite get there. But if we have a heart and a, a, a sense of inspiration and aspiration, we're going to get there at least to some measure, then you're going to start moving in that direction. Can you see what I mean? And I'm trying to stir your heart to think more outside the box, to think more uh, about what God is really after and what really pleases the heart of God and how it can be that I love like God loves. When you start having that as passion, a passion in your heart, you'll do whatever it takes. Sue and I had nine years in an All Things in Common Christian community. We probably would never do it again. <laughs> but we learn such a lot in that context. And I'm not advocating we all live together. Certainly not. But I am advocating the fact that we carry a heart that wants to love. Whatever that means, however God wants that to be expressed, God wants us to love in a, in a way perhaps that we haven't quite got to just yet. But we're on the journey towards it. Praise the Lord. What about another one? Being his church family means gathering for intentional, intimate group discipleship. I meet with two other guys on a regular basis, and we share hearts. And we, I think I mentioned before, we, we start by sharing the three Gs. How you get on with the girls, the gold, and the glory. And, and, and that's quite sensitive, isn't it, to have to share that and confess that and be real about that. But we're all, you know, have given ourselves the permission to ask those sorts of questions because we want to be true disciples who don't allow anything to get in the way of us pursuing a pure-hearted love for God. And so being in discipleship groups where there's intentionality and intimacy of confession at times and encouragement and joy at other times is a great place to show that relationship matters. And the outcome Discipleship reality sharpens the soul and causes rapid growth, but may threaten unsurrendered prides, insecurities, and inner wounds. If we carry these things, maybe we need special ministry to help us get out free of those things. And we were looking at that even yesterday in one of the courses we did in order for us to get to a place where we are willing to grow rapidly. For the grace, by the grace of God and for the glory of God. And I'm sure nobody who's sitting here today doesn't want to grow more like Jesus. Am I right? Everybody here wants to become more like Jesus. Well, it's easy to say that 
And it's another thing when the rubber hits the road and we're in a small intimate discipleship group and somebody asks a question that causes a sense of sensitivity to come in our hearts. That can be sometimes painful, but let me tell you, it creates rapid growth when it's done in love. Somebody laying down their lives for their friends. And we always used to say when we lived together in community, always correct with metaphorical tears, meaning you didn't want to hurt your brother or sister, but you want to bring them the, maybe the faithful wounds of a friend, as we read of in the book of Proverbs which causes us to become that much more on the journey towards becoming like Christ. The third one, new creation identity is formed and revealed intentionally. So our identity is discovered in this kind of way. The body then starts functioning and serving because when we know who we are, we can be who we are. So this kind of spiritual family we're talking about, missional families, they help people identify who they are in Christ, and then the body can start functioning. It protects our cherished values of love, mercy, and grace. And what we all corporately love being starts to spread and bless in our neighborhood because we become real and people feel that there are people on a journey. It meets the needs of the poor and the lonely, and many needy people come to Jesus. These are some of the things that will occur when we make an intentional decision to really want to become this missional family that pleases the heart of God. God has always longed for a covenant people. That was very much in vogue, wasn't it, in about the 90s? Everybody talked about being a covenant people. But it's a great thing to start with. And look at this scripture here. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God. That's the first part of the covenant. And they shall be my people. The second part. So the covenant is simply that. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now you see, when God is our God... He is God over every issue and need that you have. He is the ruler. He is the Lord. He is the one capable of bringing grace and forgiveness and deliverance and salvation and beauty and abundance into your life. Because He's God. He wants to do that for you. That's His passion. That's His very raison d'etre to bring that abundant life into you, having already secured your eternal life. That's the... Excuse me... <laughs> I always find these uh, ear things a little bit uh, tricky. Perhaps I've got too small ears. I don't know. Anyway, that, that's his raison d'etre. That's what he longs to do. He wants to be your God. But do you know what he wants from you? What do you think? He wants you to be his people, yeah? Now, it's easy to say, yeah, we're the people of God. But to really be his people, he wants you to covenant with one another. So there's a, horizontal, there's a vertical covenant. God covenants to be our God. We covenant to him to be his people. But to make that real, real, we have to covenant with one another to love like Jesus loves, to lay down our lives for our friends. And then that proves that we're all of the same covenant. Because how can we say we love God, who we can't see, if we can't love our brother, who we can see? 1 John 4.20 You can't say things like that. You have to prove the reality of your boast, my boast, our boast, by loving one another truly, because God is love. And if God is love and covenants to be our God and wants us to be his people, we can only be his people if we choose to love. 
If we choose not to love, we stop being his people. So you see, if we're going to fulfill the covenant, we have to covenant with one another and say, I'm going to love you, brother, you, sister. You wouldn't say this to them in your mind thinking. Even if you were in the natural, I wouldn't want to bother with you. In the spirit, I love you because I love with a special kind of love. It's not the limiting love of phileo. That's the kind of brotherly love. Remember Philadelphia, the city in the United States? That's loving with natural love, which is great. Most of the time, we love phileo. But in order to love as a spiritual missional family, we have to love agape. And I think I've got some, some examples of that coming up in a moment. But look at this one. Another well-known scripture. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the prayer of Jesus. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. You see, when we love one another, when we, it forms oneness, communitas, and we start being the people of God. And then God is pleased and Jesus' prayer is satisfied and the Lord is so full of satisfaction because he's longed for a people, his bride, to be together as one. So the heart of the covenant and the fruit of the cross is love. Choosing to love with agape love will enable us to practice all the things that you so far you've been covering in our various sermons to date. So let's quickly look at this as I come to a conclusion. Use the contrast between agape and phileo love. And listen, if you're like me, you're going to get convicted, okay? But so I just warn you up front. Because this stuff tests the heart, really. Here we go. Agape love. Loves even if no love has been returned. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Phileo love. Loves if affection has been reciprocated. So that kind of already challenges me because I love people who like me. <laughs> I love them if you don't like me so much. But I can do if I slot into agape love. And that's what's needed to be a missional family. Perseveres under trial, gives up under trial. Agape love, constant, hopeful, and joyful. Filial love, happiness ends if things go awry. Agape love loves the unlovely. Phileo shows partiality. Believes by faith, prone to doubts and cynicism. Sees the invisible and does the impossible. Relies on rational wisdom. Now we could probably preach sermons in each one of those. But can you see the differences? You know, phileo love is good. As I said, here's a bunch of guys who are enjoying phileo love together. Why? Because they're all on the same team. And they're all playing football. They just won! You can see the Vilea love thing, can't you? But if something went wrong and they said, no, I've decided to support the other team, you could, you, Vilea love would just die straight away, wouldn't it? Because agape love loves like Jesus loves. It's love that's described in 1 Corinthians 13. Here comes a few more. Agape love is buoyant and proactive. Vilea love, an ill wind capsizes it. Agape love sees past the outward to the heart, Phileo reacts harshly to negativity. Agape love, not self-seeking or arrogant, can be haughty and smug when successful. Turns the other cheek, bites back when bitten. <laughs> See the differences? Is kind and tender, not rude. Yields to moods and selfishness. Serves without self-interest. 
serves to be noticed. Can you see the contrast between the two? And if we're going to be this missional family, and I really, really hope you want to be, because I believe you do, and I believe that little picture shows me the fact that God is also on your side in helping you forge new pathways into this kind of fruitfulness that he's got for you, then consider these things. Allow the sweet conviction of the Spirit to challenge your heart so that you're beginning to say, Lord, I want you to teach me how to love like Jesus loved and consider others and be truthful and how to you know, resist the temptations to bite back and so on. How can I turn the other cheek? How can I go the extra mile? Lord, show us, teach us how to be this kind of church. So counting the cost, what are you, what am I going to decide to do? And here's my final little scripture. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the scripture as we read of in Hebrews 3. And here's a few questions, not to answer now, but maybe to consider in your cell groups that I've got. What challenges might occur if we go deeper as a spiritual family? What blessings might we enjoy if we go deeper as a spiritual family? What growth and maturity might develop on the back of all that? These are the things that we can consider, I believe, and as we take that journey towards what God has in store for this church. God bless you. Thanks, bro. Amen. Yes. That's positive. If I can let ask the band to, to come up. Yes, we're at 12.